This is Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. Hello, thank you for tuning in. I'm Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. And here, as ever, to unearth the inspiring, instructive, and highly practical wisdom of a Torah passage with a fellow seeker of biblical truth. I am delighted today to be joined by Jonathan Goldstein, the CEO of Kane International, which he co-founded in 2014 and has since built into a privately held real estate investment firm with $5.9 billion of assets under management. Under his leadership, Kane International was named Property Week's Entrepreneur of the Year in 2017. Jonathan currently serves as the chair of the Jewish Leadership Council, the umbrella organization of the United Kingdom Jewish community. He is also the chair of the Trust of the Chief Rabbi of the United Hebrew Congregations of the Commonwealth, a trustee of the Gerald and Gail Ronson Family Foundation, and an honorary president of Camp Simca. He previously served as the chair of partnerships for Jewish schools, the vice chair of Jewish care and chair of governors of Karim School in Hampstead Garden Suburb. Jonathan holds a law degree from the University of Manchester and qualified as a solicitor. I believe that is British for lawyer in 1988. Jonathan, welcome to The Rabbi's Husband. Mark, it's a huge privilege and honor to be with you. And uh, thank you for inviting me. And before I start, let, let me just say that the leadership and the inspiration that you and your wife show to the Jewish world is known the world over. Oh, wow. Thank you. You've made a huge imprint for many, many, many Jews around the world. And we're all in, you know, should thank you for the leadership role that you and your wife take. And we hope to aspire to make the impact that you've made to so many lives in Israel and Africa and elsewhere around the world. So thank you. Oh, thank you. That's, that's really gratifying to hear. Thank you. So I love your chosen passage, as I think does everybody who's familiar with it, which is Genesis 18. So uh, why don't you tell us what happens in Genesis 18 and why it's meaningful to you? There's so many parts of the Torah that one could talk about and that have such an inspiration to so many of us. But I decided to choose something relevant to the time of the year that we're speaking. And of course, this week's Sedra is Vayera. And uh, I chose this piece because it talks about a man of action. It talks about a man who understands his place in the world and that he's here to do something, which is a principle which I just referred to in respect of you and which I tried to live to myself. And to set the backdrop, it's important to remember what happened at the end of last week's parasha, where at the end of the parasha of Lech Lecha, Abraham, at 99 years old, has just been circumcised. And then we open the next parasha in Bayera, and according to our commentators, it's only three days post-circumcision. And most people who know that the third day post-operation is often, often the most painful. And there is Abraham, he's sitting at the entrance of his tent in the hottest part of the day, didn't stop him in the hottest part of the day to be sitting outside looking for guests who were passing. And God appears to him. God starts to speak to him. He lifts his eyes and he sees three strangers standing a short distance from him. And the minute he sees them, he runs to greet them, bowing down to the ground. Now, one of the first things that comes to mind here, of course, is that it tells us that he's talking to God. And yet it seems as if he seems to put God on hold. He seems to say to God, you know what, I'm going to put you on call waiting. I'm going to ask you just to take a pause, which to most of us would think is quite a rude thing. What is telling us, most importantly, that whilst communicating with God is the ultimate spiritual achievement and experience, that's not what we're here for in itself. 
the purpose of a divine experience is not just for the experience, but it's to lead us to be better people. It's to lead us to be people of action, to see the men, to run to them, and to do a mitzvah, to do help other people. So, okay, God, if you could just hold on a minute. I've got some business to attend to. I've got some people that I need, I need to look after. And that's a really big message, I believe, to us as Jews, that we shouldn't just become embroiled and engrossed in our day-to-day. We actually have to look around us and see what impact can we make on the world what difference can we make to others? And, you know, amongst many messages, which I think we can take, it's that combination of relationship with God and relationship with man that in such a few sentences and such a simple, beautiful story, you can take from that as a conclusion. You're so right. Abraham is having this conversation with God. And then it's, imagine if any was, one of us were having a conversation with God and then like three totally random travelers just appeared out of nowhere. and. What would we do? Everyone can answer for him or herself. What does Abraham do? He immediately bolts from God. And I think what's so interesting here is it says, he lifted his eyes and saw, and behold, three men were standing over him. He perceived, and so he ran. So what's missing? He didn't have to think. He perceived, and he ran. In other words, it was his reflex. It was his habit. He didn't even have to think, hey, should I leave God, greet the strangers? It was just, there are people in need. He ran. There's no thought in the middle. That's his instinct, and God loves it. Well, I mean, it's clear that God loves it because obviously Abraham is blessed and, and given the covenant. But but I think it, what it tells us, I mean, don't, don't let's forget, Mark, that in our custom, Abraham's tent had four sides, all of which were open to visitors so he could look at every angle and see people so he could invite them in. But what it's really telling us is that Abraham was clearly a man of action. He was a doer. He seized the moment, really, when he had every excuse not to. It was hot. He was talking to God. He was no doubt in physical discomfort. He just, just had his brick mill up. And yet he stood up and he made that difference. Now, let's just also understand what he did, okay? Because when he talks to the men, he says, let me get you a morsel of bread. Let me just get you a little morsel of bread. But what does he do? He has to outperform. He has to overperform. It's the absolute maximum of say a little and do a lot. Because it tells us that he goes to, Sarah asks her to make rolls, and then he, run, he rushes to the cattle and he chooses a tender calf. He fetches cottage cheese and milk. So really is the maximum, which we, again, we could all live by, to say a little and do a lot. Talk is cheap. That's right. A morsel of bread, and then he gives them literally a feast. And you reference that he hastened to the tent. That's exactly right, and it's so important because I believe the word hurry appears five times in the story. He hurried to the tent to tell Sarah. He hurries to tell Sarah to hurry. And then he ran to the cattle. What's the rush? These are three guys out of nowhere in the desert. They have no place to get to anytime soon. They're in the vast expanse of the desert happening upon Abraham. What's the rush? And I think one of the things that the insistence that the text makes on rushing is it teaches us that as the 17th century rabbi, the Ramchal said, the deeds of the righteous are done in haste. When the opportunity presents itself to do something right, when do you do it? Now. We've all seen in our lives situations where we have, have all said to ourselves, if only, if only I'd seized that moment, if I'd only, you know, taken that opportunity. It's the reverse of the other maximum, you know, when you say, you, when you need something to done, give it to a busy person, okay? No, that's a great point. It's actually the same idea. It's the same idea. The whole notion, and when you look around the Jewish world, 
you know, we, we're short of leaders. We need those people. We need people to step up to the table in every walk of Jewish life. For it. And everybody needs to find that little bit of passion, that thing that turns them on, that excites them. And we need to find ways to engage with people. You know, as I've, as I've got older, I've, I've, you know, I think you do learn that the way in which we connect and we commit to our, our Judaism is less important than the commitment itself. And we might commit to our Judaism through welfare, through culture, through sport, through art, music. There are so many different ways. But it's so important that we as communities offer that rich diet, that rich offering to people, because we must make sure that we find those triggers for people to ensure that they commit, that they actually do give their maximum back to us as a Jewish community. That's such another profound point from the passage. But let me challenge you on something here, because now, one thing we learned from the Tower of Babel is God loves diversity properly understood. Everyone's thinking the same way. God separates language diversity. So properly understood, God loves diversity, teaching us there are many ways to approach God. One of the reasons why we Jews don't convert anybody. You can get close to God and not be a Jew. No problem. It's just as easy as being a Jew. There's no point in becoming a Jew if you're not. You should be a great whatever you are. Because there are many different approaches to God, all of which get to God. But Abraham here is, let's say he's praying because he's talking directly with God at the beginning. And then the opportunity presents itself to help somebody in need. He rushes from the prayer to help somebody in need. One of the things that I, perhaps arguably, but I take away from that is the primacy of helping those in need over praying. So if someone said, should I give a dollar to create a Jewish prayer center or even a Jewish yeshiva, or should I give a dollar to United Hatzalah, for instance, to to help save the lives of those in the two minutes to separate life from death following a trauma. I go with the latter. And I think one of the inspirations I take is here is that God prefers when we help his other children in need to when we purely communicate with him. It's very easy to tell other people how to spend their dollars. That's the first thing in Sadaka terms. And it's something which I've always veered away from doing. However, I do think that we can look at our charities in our communities as charities of necessity and charities of luxury. And I think if we had to make choices between what ensure the way in which we operate as decent human beings, those charities of necessity, predominantly the welfare charities, that's really where you start in your, if you had to create a ranking. I think that the point about charities, I 100% agree with you. I understand. You know, we have an obligation to the aged in our community. We have an obligation to those who are disadvantaged. We have an obligation to those who are physically or mentally disadvantaged. Of course, we have that obligation. And, and in my view, they should come first in our tzedakah queue. The point I was making is that as we look across our communities, it is a miracle that we're still here discussing Abraham. It is a miracle that we as a Jewish people have continued that we are still here because we don't hear of any Romans or we don't hear of any Babylonians. The Hittites and the Parasites and the Jebusites and the ancient Egyptians, all gone. Not seen them in the Olympics recently. Yet, we're therefore, wherefore, if the biggest obligation with us as Jews, therefore, is to ensure in one form or other, by whatever definition people believe in on an individual basis, the notion of Jewish continuity. That is what we are here for. We are here in part to ensure the continuity and the continuation of the Jewish people. And when you sit and you learn and you read closely, just start with the, you know, with Bereshit and all the way through from creation, through Noah to Avram to the forefathers and finishing with Yosef, 
There are so many messages and lessons that we can teach and learn from each other to help in that essence of continuity, to help in that journey of continuity. And the point I was making was that as I've got older, I've realized, you know, to broaden my own mindset, to understand that people connect in so many ways. And that is the diet, the menu that we need to give people to ensure that across our communities, they have the opportunity to connect to ensure that Jewish continuity. Frame that way, you are so right. I mean, the proof of that is in the four sons at the Haggadah. Why not one son? This is the way to be, be like him. Because there are four sons, because four is basically a symbol of 400 million. You know, there are an infinite number of ways to connect to God. So if it was, there was one son, that's the way to do it. If there's two ways, you can do it that way or this way. But four sons teach us there are infinite ways to connect to God and that we, we love it. And we know that some children and adults will connect to God through study. Some will connect through music. Some will be more mechanical. Some will be, will just love volunteering. And, and these are all gifts that God gave us in different ways to connect with him as Jews. That's, I think, why we have four sons. And that's why we celebrate diversity properly understood while keeping in mind the point that you raised before, that the primary thing we have to do as Jews is take care of God's other children who are in need. Well, I, I can't agree with you more. I think that, that uh, I steered away from the Haggadah, which actually... The first night Seder and, and, and the, the Tusadorim are my favorite nights of the year. I think to sit around the table and to relive, you know, in every generation. It is what you said. It's a miracle that we do it every year. A miracle. It's a miracle that we do it every year. And even when you go to, when you go to Israel, you know, there are a couple of nights a year where even the secular world in Israel recognizes, hello, we're here. We are actually here for a purpose. We are here as Jewish people to celebrate and, rec- and remember Yitzhak Mitzrayim because it is ingrained within our DNA. It is a very, very big special part of everything that we've learned and we've understood through generations. And I do believe it's our obligation. And I, this is why I think what you're doing is so special, Mark, because what you're doing is you're forcing people like me to go back and sit down and remember and think and talk about Torah. And if that's a lesson that we can give back to our own children, that these are words and texts that have huge relevance to us in our day-to-day lives. I've spent this year, for for other reasons, learning every day virtually, not for very long, 20, 25 minutes. And it has really elevated my brain again towards the text and the joy and the richness of the world which we have been blessed with, the Jewish world, which we've been blessed with. You know, we get so wrapped up in our business lives. We get very wrapped up in our charitable lives. And, you, you know, you, you're kind enough to, to list a number of the organizations I've been involved with, fortunate enough to be involved with during my own life. Sometimes we forget our own heritage. We forget where we, are, where we came from ourselves. And when you sit down and you read Pirkei Avot or you sit and read Torah, you realize how many of the principles of our own life, of, of the secular world, have derived from Jewish thought. I mean, absolutely. Now, you just actually gave me an idea for a question I've never asked anybody before, but, okay, so you talked about Jewish continuity and the absolute importance of Jewish continuity, and I totally agree. And you also talk about how, as secular Jews, we are not habitually engaged in Torah learning, right? It's just, we, we, we may be engaged in other forms of Jewish life, but not habitually in Torah learning, and that's unfortunate. What do you say to a secular Jew who comes up to you and says, Jonathan, you are the leader of the UK British community and you've just spent the better part of COVID year studying every day. I'm standing on one foot. I want to be a, be a 
I'm not going to say better Jew because that is such a complicated idea. I want to be a more involved Jew, but I'm only willing to give Judaism two holidays. That's it. Don't convince me anymore. I'm only giving it two. What are your two? Maybe you sneak in a third, but he's gone at four. That's a massive question. Well, for me, all right, okay. If you're taking Chagim, for me, I think you start with our own heritage and you start with Pesach. I totally agree. If I'm allowed three, the second one is Purim. I'm going with Shabbat, but you can go Purim. Okay. Oh, well, I didn't take that as a hug, you see. Good. Okay. Let's include Shabbat. Well, well Shabbat, absolutely. I mean, it's the, the age-old phrase, which I, I know was not created by Chief Rabbi Sachs, but he's been adopted by him, that it's not the Jews that kept Shabbat, it's the Shabbat that's kept the Jewish people. I totally agree. And I think it's important to include Shabbat because someone says, I'm going to do, let's make it three. Someone says, I'm going to do th- three holidays, and, sh- and Shabbat's a holiday. So someone says three. As a parent of four, if I could teach other parents one simple lesson about the bringing up of children, and I know expert in this, but I have four and I've been blessed with a wonderful wife uh, and we've worked together in this process. The sanctity of keeping your family together on Shabbat, of ensuring and teaching that there's one place they go to, they're with their family on a Friday night, creates a unity which transcends the religious aspect of the experience. Beautiful and true. Whilst the religious aspect is hugely important, the whole notion that that is just something that you do, that is part of your, your... I have a 27-year-old. He lives somewhere else every Friday night. He's back here. It's not a question. And by the way, if I could teach pet children or parents one other thing about that spec, something, the blessing of your children on a Friday night. Ten-second moment that you have with your child is something which cannot be replicated and should never be forgotten. It may be the greatest ritual in Judaism. That may be number one, the blessing of the children on Shabbat. For me, I look forward to that moment every week. It is something which is very special to me. So I going back to your question. The reason I chose Purim, and we have just lived through a very unusual circumstance in the UK. I think it's important for Jews to understand that there are times when you need to stand up for yourself as Jews. And what the Purim story taught us is that there are times in your life when you need to make a stand, however uncomfortable, however unfortunate, because there are times when Jewish people feel at threat. The one thing that we have been blessed, we've been blessed, okay? We, we live in a generation which is blessed. I think we, we hear so many people complaining about 2020 and all the, the persecution, et cetera, et cetera, and the problems of racism and the lack of diversity, et cetera, et cetera. For Jewish people, we've never been so blessed. Compared to our great-great-grandparents in 1880, 1890, and all the way through the first half of the 20th century, we have a Jewish state. We have free societies that respect and honor our religions. And we live in an environment where, broadly speaking, we can do as we wish as Jewish people. I believe the following is true, that for the first time in history, every Jew in the world, with the exception of those who remain in Iran, are free to practice their Judaism. In uh, February, I was in Abu Dhabi on business. And I had a uh, coffee with the head of the Jewish community. This is the head of the Abraham Accords. Ross Creel is his name, nice man. And he said to me, you know, John, it's easier and safer to practice being a Jew in Abu Dhabi and Dubai than it is in Europe. And this is before the Abraham Accords. This is before the Abraham Accords. Extraordinary concept, but it goes back to your point. We as Jews have never had it better, but I do think it's important. And what's the message? One of the messages of the Purim story because Esther was so brave, she took 
her life in her own hands when she approached Ahasuerus, because we all know that if he didn't raise his scepter, she was in a bit of trouble. And, uh, you know, he, she stood up for herself. Mordechai sent her off on her task, and she stood up for the Jewish people. You know, we've just lived through a situation in the United Kingdom where for the first time in living history, maybe ever in, in, in modern political history, we had a potential prime minister's country who scared the Jewish community. Corbyn. Jeremy Corbyn, who was nervous. Now, if I can just take you back to 2018, I called a demonstration on behalf of the Jewish community in the third week of March 2018. I said, it's enough. And I called round after Shabbat. There was a whole episode of a mural. And those of you listening to this podcast, if you have never seen the mural, which Jeremy Corbyn endorsed, just go to your uh, safari, put in Corbyn mural, and you'll see exactly what I mean. And it's a mural of Jewish-looking bankers playing on a Monopoly board on the backs of the poor. Oh, my God. He endorsed its acceptance. Now, since September 15, when he was elected to be the leader of the Labour Party, we knew he was no friend of ours. We knew he was an enemy. But we had no DNA of his on a particularly egregious anti-Semitic act. And this mural came out, and a very good friend of mine who's a member of parliament for the Labour Party, Luciana Berger, stood up and she said, I can't stay in this party if this is the way you're going to be. God bless her. God bless her. The Esther of the United Kingdom, I should say. And I stood up on behalf of the community and I said, on Monday, we're going to meet in Parliament Square because enough is enough. And that got national coverage. We then met with him in April of 18, 24th of April, and met with a lack of empathy, a lack of understanding, a hostility. And from that point onwards, we fought a battle on behalf of a small Jewish community in the United Kingdom, less than 300,000, to say that we do not believe this man is fit and proper to be the prime minister of this country. We had it in our hope and our hearts that the British people, that we had faith in the British people, that they would understand that this man did not represent the British values of so many, many who have gone before them. And ultimately, he was rejected and repudiated at the ballot box in December of 19. And the reason, therefore, I think Purim, to answer your question, and, and we've gone way away from Vieira. No, no, I think we're there. This is the point. The, the point of, it's to, it's to guide us as Jews. Exactly. The man of action, right? The reason I think Purim is so important, because we all need to recognize that moment in our own lives. We need to recognize that moment in our lives, as Abraham did, to bring it back. Abraham realized his job now was not to talk to God. It was to get off and service men he'd never heard of, never seen, who had turned up near his tent. And we're all going to have moments in our life when we say, are we going to stand up against the establishment? Are we going to stand up for what we believe? Are we going to stand up as Jews? Or are we going to sit back and watch this happen? And we as British Jews took the opposite view. We put ourselves on the front line in a way in which we'd never done. And thank God we were rewarded because the threat, you know, we had a situation where two thirds of the Jewish community in Britain said they would have to leave the country. This is so interesting what you're saying, because my number three, I mean, we agree on one and two, Pesach and Shabbat, and not in the that order. Those are tied for number one. My number three is Sukkot. But I'm realizing why we're different is because as an American Jew, we never had anything approaching the experience of anyone ever thinking I have to leave this country because of anti-Semitism. And you just said two thirds of British Jews have that experience. So of course, of course, Purim is going to have this resonance for you in the way it does for you that is foreign to an American. I think that's true. I think the Purim story is 
an extraordinary one. Well, you understand it so much more profoundly as a British man than I do as an American. What do we know about the Megillah? Megillah is unique in many, many respects, but in one particular respect, it doesn't have Hashem's name in it. God's name is not in the Megillah. Hashem is guiding and watching the experience and saying, you know, obviously egging on Mordechai and Esther. And what it's saying is that God has us on a certain trajectory, a certain direction. He doesn't need to test. I mean, let's look at all these tests that Abraham has, okay? God knows the outcome of the test before he gives them. Sure he does. He knows what we're all capable of. That's what the notion's about. So we're looking at Purim and we're saying, okay, there is a hidden hand here helping us and guiding us through this process, giving us the inner resolve, giving us the inner strength to stand up as a community against a force that we don't understand. Because if we had lost that battle, we don't know where we would have ended up. Because whilst I'll say to you, Mark, that the, the opinion polling amongst the British Jewish community said that many of them wanted to leave, leaving Britain is not so easy. You and I know there's only two real homes for Jews in this world today. One is Eretz Israel, and the other one is America. Well, at this moment in time, immigration to America is not that easy. And you know what? And earning a living and going to live in Israel, making Aliyah is a challenge. It is a very, very big challenge for very many people. My younger brother made Aliyah uh, now uh, 13 years ago. And he and many, many of his um, colleagues and friends, you know, it's a struggle to, to work and to earn and to, you know, I'm very proud that he's done this. And I have, we have my first, my nephew, my parents' first grandchild is currently serving on the northern border. And we're very proud of that. And all I'm saying is, it's very easy for people to say, well, I'm going to leave the country where they go to. Well, getting back to your passage, how did your passage begin? It begins with the challenge to Abraham to leave your home, right? 18.1. Lech Lecha. He didn't know where he was going. Interestingly enough, that, that's a very interesting part of Lech Lecha because, of course, God tells him go, but doesn't tell him where he's going to. Right, it's Lechlechah, the passage before, exactly. Yeah, it just tells him to go, and it's because it's, it's hard to do. Just tells him where to go. Just go, follow me. And it's an, yeah, it's the, the test of, act, of ultimate faith. Just says, go from your land, your relatives, and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. And it's because it's not easy. It's not easy to do. It's hard to do. Now, I think what's interesting is that, so you and I had uh, Pesach, Shabbat, I had Sukkot, you had Purim. Neither of us had Yom Kippur or Rosh Hashanah, which I think is, is a problem with Jewish continuity because so many people who will only do two things will do Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. You got to get there later. You have to do the joyful things first. You're absolutely right. And that's where the family experience, you know, when you look at, well, there was an opinion poll, and again, research done of the British Jewish community recently. And uh, it says, you know, what are the two things that keep people Jewish? The first one is family. And the second one is a connection to Israel in one form or other. Okay, that keeps your Jewish identity strong. And if you talk about what is it about the Jewish family, it's the celebration of Hagim together. It's the celebration of festival, celebration of Shabbat. It's ensuring that you have engaged your family, as I have done. I, I was very lucky. I was brought up in a traditional, what you would call modern Orthodox home in, in the east of London, where community and the centrality of Judaism to our lives was everything. My father was not a learned man, but he completely had in his heart and his soul the going to shul, the festivals, the engagement with the community, and it's something which he's passed on to us. You can't define that. It's an indefinable quality that we as Jews have, but we need to find it. We need to ensure that we find that point of engagement, that aspiration, that love of our heritage, and we pass it on to our children. 
That is our single most objective. And that's why I'm going to just go on to one final message in, in the Abraham story that I just like to pass on. Because when we're talking about this family and this connectivity, what Abraham did to the strangers who passed him on the plains of Mamre, it was a private act. It wasn't a public act. No one else could have seen it. No one else would have seen it. And the, the reality is, it's what we do within our own homes that's our biggest legacy. It's not the speeches we might make, the honours we might receive, the positions in the community we might hold. The most important point is not how we perform in front of the cameras, but how we perform within our own homes. And in fact, there is a, a Talmud in Tarnas which says that when we go up to our maker at the end of time, the walls of our house come to life and they testify as to how we behave. The walls of our house come to life and testify. Oh, yeah, that's quite a thought to hold on to. Because our walls know us best, don't they? They know what we're really like. They know what we're really like. They know how we are towards our spouse. They know how we are towards our children. They know how we are to our guests in the Abraham context. And really, at the end of the day, that's the most important legacy we leave behind. We leave our name. Please, God, we leave our children because that's the circle of life. That's the way we want it to be, don't we? we? We want to go before our children. And, you know, when you look through, by the way, the stories of uh, our patriarchs and matriarchs, you know, it was Rivka was chosen because she gave water to the camels in an unassuming way. And we can, Moshe Rabbeinu was selected because of the care that he showed to the lamb that ran away from the flock and so on and so forth. It's these small acts of kindness. And you know, I've been through and I'm, I'm in my year of Avelis. I'm, I'm in my year of mourning for my father. And if I'd learned one thing in that time is that it's the small acts of kindness that I have received from many that have made such a big difference from me, big difference to me, I should say. Not these grand acts, but the small acts, the small texts, the small phone calls. And when I've been speaking to people in the community, and I've done an awful lot of talking during COVID, because obviously Zoom has made us so much more accessible, which has been great. I've said if I could get one message across to everybody, because I've learned it myself, and I'm not claiming to have been a great, great history of this. But if we can all show every day one small act of kindness to our community, find someone who we know is on our own, make a phone call to someone who's sick. And that's what we learned from Abraham. That is these small acts of kindness that make such a huge difference. And it's the Abrahamic consistency. It's the five times that passage reference hurrying. Because if you get the idea, I should give this kind message. I should make this donation. I should do this kind thing, whatever it is. And then you allow yourself to think something else will intervene. I'll get to it later. I'll go visit her another time. I got so much else to do now. And then you never get around to doing it. And the good deed never happens. So when, there's a, when, when one has that idea, it's just like Abraham. Don't let thinking intervene. Just act. But it's the Pirakei Avot who says, you know, when I'm free, I'll make some time to learn Torah. Oh, interesting. Right. Exactly that. It's the same point again, you know, because you know what? That's nonsense. It's the same point about if you want a job, give it to a busy man. Don't stop giving me excuses that you haven't got time for 10 minutes, for 15 minutes, for 20 minutes a day. Because if you want to find that time, you'll find it. Don't tell me that when you're free, you'll make that difference. Make that difference now. Stand up. Be counted. As a Jew, make your difference, engage with your heritage. And that's why this podcast is so revolutionary, Mark, because you are creating and making Torah accessible to so many in such a simple way. Well, thank you. Well, Jonathan, thank you for such a fascinating discussion. 
on so many things, but emanating from this awesome uh, passage of 18, one through three, Genesis. Now, the concluding question always goes from one text, the uh, sacred text of the Bible, to um, another text, which is Andre Malraux's 1968 book, Anti-Memoir. And he says, I just ran into a man with whom I served in the war. And he said, this man has saved a lot of Jews and then had become a parish priest. So I said to the priest, in all of your years of hearing confessions, what are two things you've learned about mankind? And the priest said, one, everyone is much less happy than he seems. And two, there is no such thing as a grown-up person. So Jonathan, in all of your years as being the leader of the UK Jewish community and leading and seeing and experiencing and getting to know 300,000 Jews, what are two things that you've learned about mankind? Right, well, I'm going to take you back to Pirkei Avot, okay? Because my favorite Pirkei Avot is chapter two, verse five, which has four or five different messages in it, but I'm going to choose two. And the first one, interestingly, is when I was young, my favorite book was To Kill a Mockingbird, Harperley, when the father, Atticus Finch says to his children, don't judge people until you've stood in their shoes. And then we learn, of course, it's from Pirkei which says, do not judge your fellow until you've reached his place. And for me, that's the biggest message, the biggest lesson in life, period. In other words, have empathy for your fellow man or woman. Understand that when you're giving messages, when you're passing messages, when you're negotiating, when you're drafting an agreement, when you're treating other people, always try and look at it from the other person's point of view. Never try and impose an obligation on another person that you wouldn't want to have imposed upon yourself. And I've tried to approach my business life with that philosophy. I must accept that there are some times when I've been taken advantage of because I like to come at things with an open manner and an open heart. And I think it's important, however, to keep that philosophy at my very core. Always try and treat other people the way I'd want to treat myself. And the other one is the second sentence of that same Pirkei Avot, which is don't believe in yourself until the day you die. In other words, keep yourself grounded. We've all had very, very lucky lives, okay? I said before that I think that we as Jews have lived at a time which is unparalleled in, in modern history. You know, obviously the Shoah is uh, 70 odd years ago and we now live in times when, as I've said, we can do whatever we want. But you know what? It's not all down to you. You're lucky. You've got yourself into a position. You've had a bit of fortune. Maybe God's been on your side. Don't believe in yourself until the day you die. Make sure you keep yourself grounded because if you don't, something will soon come up and remind you where you should be. That's right. Well, Jonathan, thank you for such a fascinating discussion on so many levels. And thank you for the, the great leadership and vision and execution that you've brought the global Jewish community. Mark, it's been a pleasure and a privilege. Thank you very much. Thank you. If you're enjoying this episode, I hope that you'll sign up for the Rabbi's Husband newsletter, which includes book giveaways from our podcast guests, my weekly column on Christian Broadcasting Network, inspiring updates from United Hatzalah and African Mission Healthcare, and a behind-the-scenes look at my upcoming book published by St. Martin's Essentials, The Telling, How Judaism's Essential Book Reveals the Meaning of Life. You can sign up at therabbishusband.com or feel free to email daniel at therabbishusband.com.